0: Welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and we will begin today on this last week of the year, between Christmas and the New Year, as the year comes to a close, and look back on Background Briefing's coverage of the major stories of the year 2020, And today we will start with the incident that dominated the year and continues to haunt us, and that is the seditious coup attempt against the United States government instigated and urged on by none other than the President of the United States. Earlier, Trump had called his supporters to the nation's capital on the day of Congress's certification of Joe Biden's victory as the next president and then addressed them at a rally encouraging them to march on the Capitol. Our broadcast on that day, January the 6th, began with an interview with Will Summer, a reporter covering conservative media for the Daily Beast, who covered the crowd as they marched on, then stormed the Capitol, breaking windows, strewing garbage, and even writing graffiti on Speaker Pelosi's desk. We discussed the makeup and the mood of the pro-Trump supporters who showed up in the thousands and overwhelmed an unprepared Capitol Police. Quickly breaking through the cordon surrounding the Capitol, then storming and entering the building itself. Then we'll go to background briefings broadcast on October the 17th of 2020 with Congressman Adam Schiff, who is a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurgency and discuss what he calls the insurrectionists in suits who continue to threaten our democracy. The chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Congressman Schiff led the first impeachment of Donald Trump and before that served in Congress and worked as an Assistant United States Attorney in Los Angeles and as a California State Senator. We discuss his new book, Midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our democracy and still could, and the insurrectionists in suits and ties who now populate Trump's Republican Party, which is whitewashing what happened on January the 6th, trying to turn traitors into martyrs while abandoning American democracy in the GOP's determination to cheat rather than compete, to hold on to power indefinitely. Then finally we'll go to an interview from November the 9th with Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence and political extremism. She is the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, And her latest book, co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez, is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. She joins us to discuss the three strands coalescing around Trump, the QAnon movement, the Stop the Steal movement, and the white supremacy movement. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, so, a background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free, corporate free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Will Sommer, a reporter covering tech and conservative media for The Daily Beast, who previously worked as a campaign editor at The Hill and as a political columnist for Washington City Paper. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Sommer. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Will, you covered the storming of the United States Capitol today, an unprecedented act, an amazing day. You were in the midst of it all. So give us a sense of, The crowd, these thousands of people who showed up in support of Donald Trump, urged on by the president, who not only called them to Washington in the first place, but then held a rally and uh, urged them to go to the Capitol on the very day that there was a joint session of Congress to certify the election of the person who won the election against Donald Trump, Joe Biden.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, it's a terrible day um, for the country. Um, these, this crowd is, you know, had been talking, they have been talking online for a while about, you know, either attacking police or, uh, or storming the Capitol. And they did both. To give you an idea of the makeup, I mean, some of these are, you know, kind of just hardcore Trump supporters. Um, you know, some of these people are white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville. There are QAnon um, conspiracy theorists. There are members of these far right groups like the Proud Boys. Um, you know, these are all... You know, it it is kind of like a a rogue gallery of very ugly groups um, that were involved in uh, in the protest today.
0: And that was the composition of most of them? Because what are the numbers? Uh, Are the Park Service giving out numbers on how many people showed up?
1: You know, I I have not seen any numbers. Um, I know D.C. police did not give out numbers. Um, We'll have to see from the Park Service. I mean, certainly I think it's reasonable to say tens of thousands. Um, Certainly it was thousands who broke through the outdoor barricades. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, we know hundreds, possibly thousands who got inside Congress. You know, I mean, we're talking about certainly tens of thousands of people within the district uh, for this riot.
0: And in the footage that I watched, obviously, I was busy recording as well. But in the footage that I watched on uh, CNN in particular, a number of cameramen were being hassled by the crowd. So did that happen to you? Um,
1: You know, fortunately, Ian, I was able to keep a relatively low profile, Um, you know, that certainly is a risk. Um, I I know I saw some reporters, I did not witness this firsthand, but I I talked to some reporters who said that they had been attacked by the rioters. So so I certainly, you you know, I know that was happening. And uh, unfortunately, I was able to avoid that.
0: So why were the Capitol Police so ill-prepared? I mean, they literally had the scaffolding up for the inauguration, which was used by the protesters to scale up that and get onto the steps of the Capitol.
1: Yeah, Ian, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to have to have, there's going to be an inquest to find out what happened here, because this should not have happened and something went very wrong. Um, You know, it was obvious to sort of anyone who looked at Trump forums um, in the lead up to this riot that there was a plan to scale the Capitol. I mean, these were, or break into it. um, These people were prepared. They brought ropes. Um, They had sort of clubs that they could use, uh, you know, and the, you know, so I don't know how much of this goes back to the fact that, I mean, we know in the United States that um, right-wing and white protesters are able to get away with a lot more than, um, you know, left protesters and maybe people with Black Lives Matter, for example. Um, And so I don't know if the police just didn't take this seriously or what, but, but, you know, I, I think it's a very disturbing issue.
0: And is there evidence of, uh, there were some reports that inside the Capitol, the police were high-fiving with some of the uh, protesters?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, um, a former colleague of mine, Timothy Burke, he uh, on Twitter had video of um, of the, the protesters or the rioters taking selfies with the police inside the Capitol. I mean, this is, this is after they had breached it, and, you know, after someone was shot, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's just... It's just startling, and, and it makes you wonder, you know, why on earth this was allowed to happen.
0: And what do you know, Will Summer, about the person who was shot?
1: Um, I, it, I really know very little. Um, I, I, I saw the, the person I believe to be the, the victim um, being wheeled away um, in an ambulance. But, but I really, I think very few details are available right now.
0: And she was shot outside of the Capitol, on the, on the grounds?
1: Uh, it, it, I'm not certain about that. Um, you right. know, perhaps more information has come out. It, it's kind of you know kind of fog of war situation.
0: Sure. Well, you were pretty busy, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. So, unfortunately. So again, I'm speaking with Will Sommer, a reporter covering tech and conservative media for the Daily Beast, who previously worked as a campaign editor at The Hill and as a political columnist for Washington City Paper, and he has been covering the storming of the United States Capitol today by. Trump's supporters in the thousands, urged on by the president himself. And inside, apparently, they... I mean, I've, we've seen the picture of the one of the Trump supporters sitting in the presiding officer's chair over the United States Senate uh, with a big grin. And, uh, of course, that was a very Senate chamber that was evacuated in the midst of a joint session to certify Biden's victory. The vice president of the United States had to also be evacuated did you get inside the Capitol? Because apparently the, the protesters, were you know, they strewn garbage everywhere and uh, they even wrote graffiti on Nancy Pelosi's desk.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was not able to go inside because of the, um, you know, the potential for violence and sort of the instability, instability of the situation. Um, but, you know, I've seen videos uh, from other reporters and, you know, certainly it does appear that the, the rioters were breaking glass, that they were committing vandalism, um, potentially breaking into offices. So, I mean, this is it's really, you know, it's an unprecedented moment, and it's just astounding that it's been allowed to happen. You know, certainly I think we're hearing from a lot of lawmakers that they expect prosecutions. Um, you know, I, I i don't think that would be, uh, you know, out of hand because, I mean, again, this, this was a
0: riot. So you were saying earlier, Will, that you were kind of low-key, and I guess you blended in with the crowd. What were they saying to each other? Well, Give us a I, sense of it. I was
1: one of the few wearing a mask, so I'm not sure how much I blended in. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, that aside, did you get a sense of what was motivating and what were they talking about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, these are people who, um, you know, I would say the rank and file are generally convinced by, you know, the right wing internet and the media and the president uh, that this election was stolen. And they seem, you know, they kind of came here. The, the mood, you know, there have been these previous protests in November and December, um, but I would say the mood was different today because people had sort of riled themselves up to believe that, you know, this was not just sort of a last stand for Trump, but sort of a last stand for America, you know, for the, the, the what they see as the United States. Um, and so, you know, there was constantly, even before hours, before the the breach, um, there was just talk and talk and talk of violence and um, how, if today didn't go their way, uh, you know, there were, there was going to be shootings and, and a civil war and an American revolution. So, I mean, really I talked to, I was really frankly trying to find someone who would have some more moderate rhetoric and, uh, and really struggle to.
0: So was there a, a strategy then to disrupt the uh, certification of Biden's victory? Was that their intention or, what, or was their intention to protest what Trump has been telling them? And even told them today, by the way, when he when he finally issued a video asking people to sort of restrain themselves, He went on about how he won the greatest victory and it was all stolen from him and et cetera, et cetera. So what was uh, what was their strategy? Did they were they really there to stop the certification of Biden's victory?
1: Um, You know, certainly I, I think many of them were. I think, you know, obviously I can't speak to the mindset of every rioter, but, you know, I think that many of them came and had discussed beforehand that they planned to essentially, you know, break into Congress and even attack legislators and, you know, kind of have mob rule. I mean, there was a speech, you know, at an event shortly before the, the riot where someone was saying, you know, we need military tribunals essentially to execute Democrats. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of their leaders, the leaders of these, this group. So, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, if, if there was a, I think given the stuff we've, we've seen that they brought ropes and they brought ways to break in, I think, um, unfortunately, you know, certainly there was some amount of premeditation here.
0: You mentioned uh, there may be some prosecutions, but you said also that many of the protesters were armed. I mean, what about firearms? Because Washington, D.C. does not tolerate firearms. So uh, I noticed that so many of the protesters had backpacks on. So if they went through, they smashed the windows of the Capitol, they didn't go through the magnetometers. So, my God, did they get firearms inside the Capitol itself?
1: You know, I I think we'll have to find that out later. I mean, obviously... Someone was shot at some point. So we don't know who, who did the shooting there. You know, there was a ton of chatter ahead of time about violating both D.C. and federal gun laws because you can't have a gun in Congress. Um, and so, you know, I, I would be quite surprised if, if no one with a gun got in there. You know, and, and again, you know, we saw there were Capitol Police who on the floor of the House who had to draw their guns because they were, you know, it, it seems like they felt there was some sort of firearm threat. So obviously we'll have to find out more. We know the head of the far-right Proud Boys group, Uh, was arrested on Monday with some illegal ammunition magazines for a gun. So, you know, already one of their leaders was breaking the gun laws. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to find out more, but, but I suspect there were some guns involved.
0: But did you hear any talk about guns or weapons or strategy when you were mingling with this crowd?
1: I, I did not hear talk. Well, let's see. Um, I did talk to one gentleman who sort of said that I shouldn't take gentlemen, um, but it, it, one fellow who said that, you know, after he expected that, you know, if if Biden won or, you know, his, his win was certified today that, you know, that essentially there would be big, big, big shootings um, in the next couple of days in DC, you know, it, obviously these folks keep it kind of close to the vest when they're actually there. You know, there weren't people waving guns around, I would say, um, at least not that I saw, but yeah, I mean, certainly, in the lead up to the event, there was a lot of discussion about bringing guns.
0: And were you there for Trump's rally when he urged his followers to march on the Capitol?
1: I was not. I, it, I was at the Capitol the whole day, so I was not by the White House.
0: I see. So you were sort of watching as they <laughs> they headed towards you, right? In large numbers. Yes, exactly. And, and, and you know, and that, that's
1: what became, I think maybe when I realized the situation was going to get out of control. Was that there was a point where sort of these very these barricades that were very far from Congress were breached, and then you know that kind of you know it seemed sort of like the Capitol Police were going to be able to push the the crowd back, and then suddenly you look from the White House where all these people went to the pro, went to the Trump rally, and you see just thousands upon thousands of more people coming. So I, I think really just these massive numbers um, that came from the Trump rally were really key to the chaos today.
0: And we don't know the numbers, but there are followers, but. Earlier, you were giving us a sense of the makeup of the crowd, and it doesn't sound like it was particularly representative of America itself, that these were the the sort of the far-right fringe people. Was there any sense that you got that there were more moderate people, more reasonable people, uh, who were simply protesting as opposed to storming and looting?
1: You know, I mean, certainly not everyone who was there went inside Congress or... Cross the barricades I mean I, I talked to one woman and I said you know what are you gonna do what do you think people are going to do if Biden's win is becomes official today and she said well I guess'll we'll, you know I'll just go home and you know continue working to elect Republican candidates but um, but for the most part I mean I would say this is a very radical crowd um, you know I should mention there were also a lot of militia groups there you know in in full you know body armor and so yeah I mean it, this is not the uh, not exactly a, a big crowd of moderates I would say
0: well it is pretty clear, though, that not only were the Proud Boys there, the QAnon people were there. Did you run into any of them?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's kind of uh, very strikingly, there's this very kind of notorious QAnon character named the Q Shaman from Arizona. And this is a fellow who dresses in sort of animal skins and often carries a spear with him. Um, and, you know, he's, he's frankly, you know, he's obviously a little hinge, uh, and he was able to break in to the house along with everyone else and, and sit in the speaker's chair. So, I mean, you know, I, I there's a real sign, I think, of, of where we are out of the country. Um, you know, there's video from inside the house of a Capitol Police officer fleeing in front of a mob of QAnon supporters inside the building. Um, I, I talked to a QAnon supporter before the event, she had a big Q sign, and she said, you know, oh, the, the Democrats are Satanists, and they, you know, they torture children and all this nonsense. Um, and then I saw her afterwards, and, you know, I don't think she broke into the Capitol, but I said, you know, what do you think of all this? And she was thrilled. I mean, she was, this was the QAnon dream coming true.
0: Well, they do have QAnon representatives inside the chamber. <laughs> I, imagine, I don't know whether they were the newly elected uh, QAnon representatives, one from uh, Georgia and I think one from Colorado, uh, who, by the way, the woman from Colorado insists on carrying a Glock in her purse against the D.C. police rules. But they were, of course, told a to lockdown. I I tried to get a number of Congress people on the record, but I was told by their press people that they're not able to talk, that they were under instructions to lock down in place and uh, not to do media. So I wondered what happened to the QAnon Congress people, whether they recognized...
1: Yes, I've seen them send some kind of lukewarm. I know Lauren Boebert, the representative from Colorado, sent a sort of, you know, kind of a, a, a very mild tweet sort of chastising the protesters. Um, but, you know, again, this is someone who has, you know, been courting these far right elements and was really elected uh, thanks to their help.
0: So what do you think is going to happen then, uh, Will Summer, just in the last couple of minutes in terms of the inauguration itself? This is a, I mean, I find it an extraordinary irony that the last time we had inaugura- inauguration at that very same spot where the protesters scaled the walls today and scaled the scaffolding, was Donald Trump, where he talked about American carnage. And of course, what we have today, I guess it's the full circle, is is that we do have American carnage. But these people, are they going to stick around for Biden's inauguration and disrupt that?
1: You know, that's a great question. You know, I've heard some talks from these groups of of coming back and kind of terrorizing the inauguration. Um, You know, I think the Biden administration has a little challenge here because uh, you know, I, I think given the pandemic, normally you would sort of have a, uh, you know, sort of a lower key inauguration and, and hope to not have massive crowds. Uh, but at the same time, if, if the alternative to not having your own supporters there is going to be just you know the same stuff we saw today of these people besieging the inauguration or you know the White House or Congress, you know, I think it's a very difficult issue.
0: Well, is there any sense though? Because you, you're covering the crowds, but you, you wonder. Whether the senators, in particular, who had to evacuate their chamber, how they feel about Josh Hawley and uh, and Ted Cruz's encouragement of this outrageous event that took place today. I don't think they necessarily encouraged the in, uh, event itself, but they planned to and they tried to stop Biden's inauguration, which was also the intention of the crowd and the intention of the person who urged the crowd on none other than the president of the United States. Absolutely. I
1: mean, look, these are people who have, um, you know, so many Republicans uh, have been sort of playing footsie, frankly, with, with these elements. Um, And, and certainly have been very, many of them have been very reluctant to, you know, criticize Donald Trump and it's sort of passed the buck. uh, Even as he, uh, you know, even as he claimed the election was, was stolen from him. Um, We know that, you know, more than a dozen senators today were going to object to the results and, and many more members of the House. And so, you know, you're, you're feeding these, these really ugly elements of our politics. And then suddenly, you know, it ends with, you know, these people breaking into Congress. You know, I think we were all concerned that some of the, the, law, the, law, the lawmakers might be shot. I mean, it's, it's really a really terrifying moment. And, and I think, frankly, these Republican representatives who have fed this, uh, you know, have, have themselves to blame.
0: Well, Will Summer, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Will Summer, who's a reporter covering tech and conservative media for The Daily Beast, who previously worked as a campaign editor at The Hill and and as a political columnist for Washington City Paper. And you just heard background briefings broadcast from January the 6th, and we'll be back in a moment with the congressman who led the second impeachment of Trump, talking about insurrectionists in suits, from background briefings broadcast of October the 17th. From whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic And joining us now is Adam Schiff, the United States Representative for California's 28th Congressional District. In his role as Chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, he led the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And before he served in Congress, he worked as a United States Attorney, an assistant United States Attorney in Los Angeles, and as a California State Senator. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Schiff.
2: Thank you very much. Great to join you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And in your book, you mentioned that you, like many, didn't think that Trump would ever get elected, but he clearly did. And a lot of Republicans were alarmed. In fact, Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and others met and plotted to figure out what to do to stop Trump. But being a reality TV guy, he was able to knock everybody off the island. And the rest is history. But When January the 6th happened, you had McConnell and McCarthy again excoriating Trump for what he'd done and holding him responsible. At that point, Congressman Schiff, did you think that there was finally a chance that the Republicans might purge their party of this malignancy and of this malevolent man?
2: Uh, I did. Uh, I think there was a window of opportunity uh, in the aftermath of that uh, bloody insurrection when Republican Party leadership really uh, toyed with the idea of casting him overboard. Um, With Kevin McCarthy, I think, you know, whatever fit of conscience he had lasted only about 30 seconds, but you could see McConnell really wrestling with it. You could see McConnell understood what a disaster Donald Trump had been for his party, for the institution he had served in for decades, uh, for the country. Um, But uh, that feeling uh, also gave way. It was only two weeks after McConnell blamed Trump for inciting the insurrection by saying that uh, he was morally and practically responsible for that that bloody assault. Uh, Between the time he was asked, well, if he was the nominee again, would you support him? And his answer was absolutely. And I think in that two weeks, we really lost the opportunity as a country to move forward. I think McConnell concluded that if he tried to cast Trump overboard, that he himself would instead be thrown overboard. And that may be true, but Uh, At the end of the day, why are you in Congress if you're not willing to do the right thing when the country needs it?
0: So is this to say that they're terrorized by the base, and the base at best is about 30% of the country, so are we subject to a tyranny of the minority? Because obviously the activists in the party are the ones that can show up at primaries, and we've seen the kind of activism which is frankly (laughs) almost thuggish that's going on now with attacking school boards and election officials. So is that what it comes down to, that we're talking about the politics of intimidation?
2: Well, I do think you're right when you say that uh, we are are dealing with the tyranny of the minority um, in several respects. First of all, in the House, because of the gerrymander, and Republicans right now around the country trying to draw as aggressive a map as they can, um, because of the gerrymander, through much of the decade, each decade, Congress, uh, the House of the Representatives uh, is governed by a minority of Americans. Um, similarly, in the Senate, really for more than a century now, uh, you have minority rule in the Senate because 23% of the votes in the Senate are con- uh, controlling 60%, 20% of the population of the country, that is, are controlling 60% of the votes in the Senate. Uh, and because of the Electoral College, we often have the country run by someone elected by a minority of Americans. And you know how long can a democracy continue or prosper uh, if the majority is not ultimately ruling? Um, but I, I do think more to the the, the point you're making about uh, threats and intimidation. When Donald Trump pushes this big lie, and others in the Republican leadership join him in pushing that big lie, they're undermining the the very uh, pillar of our democracy that that is elections. We we use elections to decide who governs. If people don't trust anymore that they can use elections to decide who governs, then that just opens us up for violence uh, and things like January 6th. So, So I do think that that's very much an issue.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Adam Schiff, the United States Representative for California's 28th Congressional District. In his role as Chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, he led the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And before he served in Congress, he worked as an Assistant United States Attorney in Los Angeles and as a California State Senator. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Well, clearly the Republicans' efforts at voter suppression are multi-layered. You mentioned gerrymandering, where they can pick up the House before one vote is cast. And then you have on Election Day all kinds of of, um, voter suppression. And then after the vote, through some of these key legislatures controlled by Republicans, they get to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like the results, they can overturn it. Then you have this other layer, where people like Bannon are out there, organizing these radicals, the same kind of people like the cyber ninjas who did that bogus recount in Arizona that are intimidating election workers and driving people out. These normally neutral people are quitting in droves, and they're being replaced by these crazy partisans. I mean, the table is being set for a one-party state here in the United States, surely.
2: Well, this is, I think, the gravest threat to our democracy, and I write about this uh, in The Night in Washington, There may be another violent attack on the Capitol. Uh, The president is pushing the same big lie that led to the first attack on the Capitol. But if there is, it will fail like the last one did. What is more dangerous to the country, more dangerous to our democracy, ultimately, are the efforts you're describing around the country to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisan boards and partisan legislatures uh, to disenfranchise people of color. Um, if uh, Brad Raffensberger, the secretary of state in Georgia, wouldn't find 11,870 votes, Donald Trump seems determined to find someone who will uh, in the next election. And, and so this is how democracies come to an end. It's not always through violent means. More often, it's through using the instruments of democracy to, do, to destroy that democracy. Uh, and we have to vigorously push back uh, in every state in the country.
0: Well, that was a pretty thin read that saved us in 2020, Raffensperger and a couple of election officials in Michigan that that were traditional Republicans who did the right thing. They're being purged. You've seen how Tucker Carlson of Fox News spent a whole week cozying up to Orbán in Hungary, the dictator there, who set the stage for electoral autocracy. So... This is what worries me, is that there's something that's gone wrong in the country where one of the two parties no longer seems to value democracy and seems to be perfectly okay with just, you know, instead of competing, cheating.
2: That's exactly right. Uh, At this moment in time, and it's it's, uh, a grave danger to the country, one of our two great parties is no longer a party of any ideas or ideology. It is an autocratic cult around the former president, and they are celebrating uh, Viktor Orban, that uh, that wannabe dictator uh, that you mentioned in Hungary. They're organizing political conventions, uh, American political conventions, in Budapest because they're so enamored of this authoritarian model. And of course, Donald Trump, through his four years in the presidency, demonstrated nothing but contempt for our fellow democracies and nothing but admiration for uh, autocrats, uh, whether it was. Uh, Putin, or it was Xi in China, or it was Erdogan in Turkey, or al-Sisi in Egypt, and there's this dangerous flirtation right now in the Republican Party with authoritarianism, and it, it underscores you know, the importance of passing voting rights legislation, certainly, but it also underscores the importance of passing the reconciliation bill and the, and the infrastructure bill, because we need to show that democracy works, and democracy can produce uh, a lot of young people right now question whether democracy is the right model. And, uh, and a combination of that and uh, the Republican Party giving itself over to, uh, to authoritarianism uh, you know, tells me that there is no accommodating the GOP right now. They're just going to need to be beaten at the polls. Uh, as long as they are, are not wedded to our democracy, they're just going to have to be beaten at the polls. And the good news is that they are a minority of Americans, uh, the vast majority of Americans believe in our dom- democracy. They want to continue its incredible legacy in this country. So, you know, I'm, I'm confident we're going to get through this. I, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because midnight is the darkest uh, hour of every day. Um, but it's also a, a time of, of optimism because everything that follows uh, has the prospect of light.
0: Well, the clock is ticking, though, surely, on getting voting rights legislation done, and it seems to be the best option is the Mansion bill. So what are the chances of this getting done? Because you can't enter a race that's rigged against you.
2: I think the only pathway, uh, you're right, is to persuade Joe Manchin that we need a carve-out, at least, for the filibuster of the filibuster for voting rights. I certainly favor doing away with the filibuster altogether. But um, but at a minimum, um, we cannot let the filibuster be used as it has been used historically, which is to disenfranchise people of color. Uh, and it shouldn't be that hard of a case to make to Joe Manchin or for him to make back home that uh, if Mitch McConnell is going to do a carve-out of the filibuster to jam Supreme Court justices onto the court, there ought to be a carve-out to make sure that the fundamental right the right upon which all else rests, the right to vote, is protected. So
0: a lot of the work that you've done with the Intelligence Committee and the impeachment, which came out of testimony from Colonel Vindman and Fiona Hill and others, has surely given you some puzzlement as to what is at the heart of this relationship with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And I just spoke with both Vindman and Fiona recently, and then Miles Taylor just the other day, who was the chief of staff to uh, Kirsten Nielsen, and he said that when they first started in these National Security Council meetings, he wouldn't give me the details, obviously, but the principals, Secretary of State and Homeland Security, were just alarmed by what the Russians had done in 2016, and they were meeting to figure out what to do, but then they were quickly told in no uncertain manner by Trump that he would not absolutely tolerate anybody saying anything bad about Putin and dealing with the Russian issue. And Nancy Pelosi once said, that a, with Trump, you shake a tree and a Russian falls out. So <laughs> given all of that, what's your conclusion here? What is at the heart of this relationship? Well, I think it's
2: a couple of things. Um, I think uh, it's Donald Trump's uh, fixation, uh, his admiration for dictators and strongmen—you know the model that he would like to use in the United States. He'd like to make himself a Putin of America. Uh, but I also think there's a there's a greed motive. Donald Trump has always wanted to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, um, and the Trump Tower he was trying to build during his presidential campaign and lying to the country about when he was saying he had no dealings with the Russians while his, uh, his lawyer, Michael Cohen, and his kids uh, were trying to get this project done. And Michael Cohen was literally on the phone to the Kremlin, seeking the Kremlin's help to make this, this deal and make this money. Um, that's still, I think, um, an enticement to him. Uh, when he was caught in that lie about a year later, already now president, when he was caught in the lie that he told during the campaign about having no business dealings with the Russians, he was asked about it. He was on the White House grounds. I write about this. In the book, he's standing outside uh, with helicopter one in the background, his hair unnaturally unmoved by the rotors. Uh, and he's asked about it. And he says, you know, and for a guy who lies all the time, he was actually quite transparent. Um, he didn't deny that he had lied about it, but he said, uh, um, I might have lost the election. Why should I miss out on all those opportunities? That is, you know, he was basically saying, Why should I miss out on all that money? And I think throughout his presidency, he had the same view, which is, that he would be a damn fool to criticize Putin because Putin holds the cards Until, you know, in terms of whether he would be able to make those hundreds of millions off of that Trump Tower Moscow deal. Uh, so some of the compromise, I think, is in plain sight. There may, may be more compromise. We are literally still in litigation uh, over trying to get the Deutsche Bank records. But I, I think what you see in plain sight is already enough to explain his bizarre Affinity is unwilling to stand up, unwillingness to stand up to Putin uh, in any way, and and his betrayal of America's interests to the Kremlin.
0: Well, when he first visited Moscow on July the 4th of 1987 on a foreign ministry junket, he was promised a Trump Tower in Moscow. So that's the same lure that Felix Sater and Michael Cohen were working on in 2016. But both Colonel Vindman and Fiona had made it clear that. For Putin, Trump is the gift that keeps on giving because Putin doesn't, didn't, I'm sure he thought like everybody else that Hillary would win, but if Hillary had won, Trump would have been running around the country for the first four years of her tenure, uh, leading rallies of lock her up, lock her up. He is extraordinarily in the depth and the horror of the divisions in this country and people on the right now talking about civil war. This is all the gift that keeps on giving. Now, You know, at the risk of making uh, Putin seem like a genius, and I'm sure if you were to suggest that he was responsible for the greatest intelligence operation since the Germans put Lenin in a boxcar and sent him to Russia in in 1917, uh, he would take credit for it, whether he did it or not. But will there ever be any clarity about that? What exactly is the hold over Trump?
2: You know I honestly, I think that there's a tendency because Trump was guilty of so much corruption, that with each new uh, um, illustration of his corruption, uh, people would search for, okay, what's the next illustration of his corruption? I don't know that we need to find much more uh, than we know already uh, that he was pursuing this uh, this lucrative deal and lying about its American people. Um, you know, I'd also point out that uh, during his presidential campaign, uh, as we found, uh, his campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was secretly meeting with an agent of Russian intelligence uh, and giving that agent Russian intelligence internal campaign polling data, strategic information about their strategy in, in battleground states while that Kremlin intelligence agency was running a clandestine social media campaign to elect Donald Trump. Uh, so Donald Trump must feel that the Russians helped get him elected in the first place. Uh, he owes a great debt to Vladimir Putin. Uh, now, whether, in fact, the Russian help was enough to tip the balance, we'll never know. Uh, but we know that they helped. We know that Trump welcomed it. We know that Trump lied about it. Uh, and if there's more that the Kremlin is aware of that uh, that they can hold over his head, um, uh, whether we'll find that or not, I don't know. But what we know already is sufficiently uh, an indictment of Donald Trump.
0: Well, one wonders, though, if you could prove that, that former President Trump is in fact a trader. what kind of impact that would have on the base, that's the part that's so extraordinary because they're in this bubble of delusion that's generated by Fox News. And that leads me to question whether or not Rupert Murdoch could be held just as culpable for this divided and toxic political environment we're in.
2: Well, look, I I think Fox News uh, and now OAN and Newsmax uh, have been uh, hugely destructive to the country. And, you know, Fox in particular, I think, has to worry about their liability, given the way they were talking down a pandemic. Well, internally, it appears they were every bit uh, aware of just how deadly it was. Uh, And I think that all the attacks they made uh, in supporting the president on Dominion voting systems. Uh, you know, there's nothing, I think, like uh, like the threat of losing money to get Fox's attention. Um, when when Trump became president, Fox had a choice to make. Were they going to be the conservative channel? Were they going to be the Trumpist channel? And they made the financial decision that there was a lot more money in being the Trumpist channel. Uh, and as long as they think that they have a profit incentive to divide the country and, and rent it asunder, that's what they're going to continue to do. Um, it's a very difficult problem to deal with because we have a First Amendment that we venerate. Um, but, you know, we we focus a lot, as we should, on what we can do vis-a-vis the social media companies. But we can't uh, also forget about the, the pernicious impact of Fox Primetime and, and Newsmax and OAN uh, and the rest of the right-wing infrastructure.
0: So just in closing, uh, Congressman Schiff, in terms of your new book, Midnight in Washington, you do cover William Barr a lot. And my sense of him was that it's that old adage, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. That Trump was so out of his depths and surrounded by sycophants that maybe Barr <laughs> was drunk on the notion that he was really running the show. But just in terms of the point that you've been making a lot lately in the media and in your book, uh, we've seen, of course, the people that stormed the Capitol and desecrated it and defecated. But you're talking more now about the insurrectionists in suits and ties, and we've seen the outrageous behaviour of John Eastman and of Jeffrey Clark. Is there anything beyond naming and shaming these people? Well, you
2: know, I I really emphasize uh, in the book um, something that Robert Carroll, the historian, once said in an interview, that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals who we are. Power revealed Bill Barr to be utterly craven, uh, willing to uh, bend the Justice Department uh, against the public interest and use it to... Serve as a criminal defense uh, practice for the president, um, helping to shield those who would lie to cover up for him, and uh, and, uh, uh, and and to go after the president's enemies. Um, and I think if you look at Bill Barr back in the George Bush era, George Herbert Walker Bush era, um, we didn't have much of a sense of him, but we found uh, we found out who he was when he was tethered to a person as corrupt as Donald Trump. We found out uh, that. Uh, he had little scruple. Um, I uh, viewed him then, uh, as I do now, as uh, at the time that he held that position, the second most dangerous man in America.
0: Well, Adam Schiff, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Uh, It's a pleasure to join you.
0: Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Congressman Adam Schiff, the United States Representative for California's 28th Congressional District. In his role as Chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, he led the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And before he served in Congress, he worked as an Assistant United States Attorney in Los Angeles and as as a California State Senator. And he's the author of the new book just out, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. And you were just listening to a broadcast of background briefing from October the 17th, and we'll be back in a moment with a broadcast from November the 9th. handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me already Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kathleen Ballou, who's a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence, and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement, and Paramilitary America. And the latest book co-authored with Raymond Gutierrez is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kathleen Ballou.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you. And of course, a field guide <laughs> in- indicates what bird is going out, looking, into the, looking at rare species. How did you come up with that concept in terms of searching out for white supremacists?
3: Well, you know, um, with Bring the War Home, I noticed that a lot of the work I was doing with journalists, with activists, policymakers and community members alike was sort of giving a basic orientation of what the problem of white supremacy is as understood by scholars and how we might understand it and confront it in its various permutations. So we were looking for a way to think about not only one part of the issue, so My first book would be an example of one part of this, the white power movement, but also a way to think about the other problems. Um, We might think of it as a a board fence, right, where one plank in the fence is racial violence. But we also need to think about the way that our jury instructions work, the way that our legal instruments work. Um, There are unequal outcomes across multiple parts of our society, whether or not there is individual racist belief at play. So this guide is trying to understand that whole system of interlocking issues.
0: Well, today we're learning that Republican Representative Paul Gosar posted a Photoshopped anime video on his Twitter and Instagram accounts showing him apparently killing Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Joe Biden with a sword he is pretty unashamed, isn't he, about his many appearances before white supremacist forums?
3: I haven't seen this clip yet, but there are many instances where white supremacist groups, um, white power groups, meaning groups that are openly interested in a white ethno state, have made inroads into our mainstream politics. So this is perhaps one example among many that we should be considering. There was just a report going around that 38 members of elected office are either members of the Oath Keepers or have an affiliation with the Oath Keepers. Now, Oath Keepers is a extra-legal private militia group that is illegal in all 50 states. Legal militias are only in the National Guard and in State Guard units. That was This has been the case since 1903. Um, So the fact that these groups are now making inroads into our politics is is a matter of concern for everyone.
0: Well, what concerns me, though, uh, Kathleen, is that they're pushing the envelope. They're brazen. They're in your face. And the law enforcement, particularly going all the way up to the top law enforcement officer, the attorney general of the United States, doesn't seem to be particularly bothered. Is Gosar, breaking the law by threatening to, you know, attack Biden with a sword and murder AOC. AOC tweeted out today basically blaming Kevin McCarthy, saying he's not going to do anything about it. But what are the laws here? I mean, the fact that Bannon is completely in criminal contempt of the Congress itself, I know there's a jail cell in the basement of the Congress. I don't know why they're not using it. Do you feel that the white supremacists and their... Political enablers like Gosar are are emboldened, whereas the people that are supposed to protect us from these dangerous people seem pretty feckless.
3: Well, I wouldn't quite go that far because the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have both officially identified white supremacist extremism, um, domestic violent extremism, as the single greatest threat of terrorism facing the American people. Um, so there are surveillance agencies who are taking this very seriously. The NSA is taking it very seriously. The DOD is beginning to do some serious work here, too. There are all kinds of problems, though, in confronting this. Um, one of them has to do with the sort of mores of elected office and how we expect our congressional representatives to behave and comport themselves, how far we expect a contempt charge to carry. Um, I think that this set of questions, though, really gets at a central problem, which is in my first book, I'm looking at the white power movement in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And in that period, one of the things the archive shows us is that they turned to violence against the government and mass casualty violence because they didn't think they could get anywhere with mainstream po- politics. They thought that door was closed. Um, one activist wrote about this as, the time for the ballot has passed, now is time for the bullet. That's not true anymore. Um, there are certainly groups that are still pushing for guerrilla warfare as the primary method of social change. They're still talking about Boogaloo and race war. Um, there's still groups like Adam Waffen and the base that are trying to foment revolution. We still see that in the manifestos. But the door to political change seems to be at the very least cracked, if not all the way open. And so that means we have to think about dual threats to Americans, civ- civilians, and to the United States as a democratic nation. One is the threat of mass casualty attacks and terrorism, and the other is the threat to our democracy, the threat of authoritarian rule.
0: Well, there's no shortage, though, of these far-right radicals joining the political process, and we're just learning now that 10 Republicans who attended and were involved in the January 6th rally just got elected. Two of them got elected to the Virginia House of Delegates uh, on uh, last Tuesday, a week ago, uh, Dave LaRock and John McGuire, and they're totally proud of the fact that they stormed the Capitol. Apparently, there's at least. 57 state and local GOP officials have been identified as having attended the January 6th riot, and they're being elected to various council seats and school boards across the country. So there's no deterrent in the political world against, you know, attacking the very foundation of American democracy itself.
3: That's right. I think that our best hope is in democratic institutions and democratic action. And I guess what I mean there is, we have to rely both on institutions to do their jobs and we have to rely on people to band together within their communities and across communities to ensure that democracy continues to function. Those are not small things to ask, but I think we really are at a precipice.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Kathleen Belew, who's a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence, and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, and the latest book co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. So, Kathleen, there was a recent poll done by the Public Religion Institute that found that 30% of Republicans feel that violence is somewhat inevitable or necessary, I think is actually the way it was phrased. That's a pretty alarming statistic. And again, is there any deterrence against that? Is there any sense that that's beyond the pale? I mean, I keep reading all the time that within these white power movements, there's lots of discussions about civil war. Is this just sort of musings and bragging uh, and delusions or uh, are there serious plans out there being made in this clandestine world of white power?
3: Well, the white power movement has been trying to foment civil war since 1983 at least. Um, So that idea is, you know, alarming, but certainly not new. The thing that I think is, is somewhat new and very concerning is this question about how many mainstream Americans have been pulled into this fringe ideology. Um, and we saw some of this, I think, you know, it's it helps to think about January 6th as the collision of three different streams of militant right organizing. It's the collision of QAnon, which is quite new and people don't understand very well how it works, um, with the Trump-based Stop the Steal protesters, which has within it kind of a a range of intensity of activism from people who just wanted to attend a political rally and, 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 you know, exercise their rights to people who were were interested in breaching the building. And then there's a third stream, which is the organized white power and militant right groups. Um, And those were, you know, that that last stream is much smaller in number, but those are the people you saw moving through the crowd wearing tactical gear, holding radios, working in coordination, trying to breach the building first, um, approaching the building before Trump was done speaking. Those are the people who have substantial contacts ahead of the event, etc. Um, and what we know about those groups is that they immediately after January 6th began targeted campaigns of recruitment into QAnon and Stop the Steal online spaces. So They were interested in using that event as a recruitment action, not just as, for instance, a mass casualty event. In fact, we know it was not supposed to be a mass casualty event. Um, So I think that tells us that the movement sees this as an opportune moment for Um, You know, mainstream recruitment and attempts at radicalization. The question is how big that component is. So I, as a historian, I have my doubts about polling, um, and I'm happy to talk to you more about that. One of the things is that, as a colleague was telling me yesterday, sometimes people will express something to a pollster on a telephone call as a matter of sort of making a point, but maybe would not, you know, they say they'd say that they would encourage violence, but would not themselves actually commit a violent action. Um, So there is this question about the difference between what people say and what people do, right? Um, However, the numbers of people who say that they expect or support violence are very concerning. Um, And they do represent a sort of uptick from, you know, the last big surge of militia and white power activity in the 1990s.
0: Well, as an historian, though, surely you find it troubling that there's an attempt to rewrite history about what happened on January the 6th. We all saw it with our own eyes. The television coverage was pretty widespread. And subsequently to that, all of these videos have been gathered by the FBI, as I identified, somewhat 650 assailants of the Capitol. And yet, you've got, starting with former President Trump and many others, uh, trying to turn these, I would describe them as traitors, traitors to American democracy as heroes and Ashley Babbitt is now being lauded as a, as a martyr. So how do we draw the line here between real history and rewritten history that's happening right now? I mean that it supposedly it was a love fest and it was all done by Antifa.
3: Yeah. Which I just to clarify for people listening there and, and there's no factual basis to support the Antifa stuff at all. I think so I you know, it's it's really an interesting thing to see historical revision work so quickly and so completely in this case. I study historical memory and the moments when, after an act like this, you know, that the nation comes to a very different idea of what happened. And there's all kinds of reasons it happens, but you know, to see it happen in real time this quickly has been incredibly disturbing. I mean, the the thing it makes me think, and I I know I'm a historian, so of course, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But the thing it makes me think, though, is that the value of getting the history straight and, and doing the work of understanding what happened on January 6th is just that much more important. We have to do that work of understanding what happened and what it meant. Otherwise, we go the way of something like Oklahoma City, where we're walking around with no idea of what that was when it was the largest deliberate mass casualty on American soil between 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Um, And without that kind of memory, without understanding these legacies, we really cannot organize an appropriate response to this kind of a problem.
0: So given that you've got, what, 650 prosecutions underway, what about, though, the architects, the brains behind this operation, not the brawn, And, and that's where... There feels like there's a huge deficit. Now, maybe the January 6th select committee in the Congress is starting to look at some of these people that appear to be the brains behind it in the War room in the Willard Hotel. And now you've got indictments just yesterday of Bernard Carrick and Bill Sipion and Jason Miller and also Michael Flynn, former national security advisor, short-lived as he was, etc. And we already had the indictment of... uh, Bannon, who's now been held in contempt of Congress, although again, he's not arrested. So, when are we going to see some of the the important people behind this? And John Eastman, of course, was another one who, who was also subpoenaed by this January 6th Select Committee. When are we going to see some of them held held accountable? And will that will that make a difference? I don't mean to harp on this, Kathleen, but I just am frustrated that this movement that you write about is on a roll. And they haven't been pulled over. And I don't know whether name and sh- naming and shaming is sufficient. I would have thought it's more important that they do some time and end up in orange yeah. jumpsuits.
3: I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's the January 6th case is one of the places where this is getting articulated. But the Science versus Kessler civil suit in Charlottesville is on right now as well. And that's another place we need to be looking to be sure that justice is carried out. I mean... Um, white power activists don't need a huge green light to continue, um, this action. And we know that big acquittals have unleashed waves of violent action in the past. Um, we also know that it is incredibly difficult to get convictions for things like seditious conspiracy or conspiracy, um, at all for these activists for a number of historical reasons. Um, So, I mean, I I think, you know, I'm not in the room on either of these cases. My hope is that some of the earlier um, people tried will be providing the evidentiary base for more serious charges against others to come, um, at least in January 6th. And, you know, with Charlottesville, I think it's very important to be paying attention to that trial, which really represents the sort of opening unification moment of much of this activity in the present.
0: So just to go back to what you were saying earlier about the three strains in uh, this movement, it's not just the white power strain, but there's also the QAnon strain and uh, Stop the Steal. Some of the, the people that are keeping that alive in a, a, you know, the echo chamber of Fox News, for example, with people like Tucker Carlson, I mean, there is obviously, we had the Nuremberg trials that the top Nazis were held responsible. Obviously, the the brown shirts at the street level started out doing a lot of damage, but they were directed and they were motivated by propaganda from somebody like Joseph Goebbels. Well, mm-hmm. you have identifiable propagandists today, like Tucker Carlson, but I would hold surely Rupert Murdoch more responsible than Tucker Carlson. He runs that network along with Sinclair and these other. So how much is this right-wing echo chamber that motivates and pumps out this delusion and keeps these people hermetically sealed in this bubble where they're immune to facts and evidence, which is, I guess, the only way you can sort of bring them to the light. So I would have thought that that those people are culpable.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things um, in the field guide is sort of the, the effort to trace out the ways that both direct culpability like that have worked across history and also the ways that indirectly um, different parts of our society, like journalism, like courts, like immigration law, have upheld um, kind of big systems of white supremacy and also created opportunities for racial violence and for uh, racial violence perpetrators to avoid accountability. So for instance, thinking about the way that communication networks have developed the way that conservative talk radio has sort of created a place for some of these ideas to gain a mainstream following. Um, That's exactly the kind of thing we're looking at.
0: Well, just in closing though, there was some sense a while back, and I don't, maybe it's still alive and well, that the younger generation, I'm sure this would include the students that you teach at the University of Chicago, Kathleen Ballou, are sort of post-sexual and post-racial. They don't have the hang-ups of the older generations about race and gender. So is that happening? Or on the other side, it seems like Donald Trump, with his Bertha movement, was able to sort of bring back racism. It it went underground, I guess, during the civil rights movement. But then when Trump came along with the Bertha movement, and seemed to give people permission to be racist again. So it seems like we're Are we in a race between the old gods' uh, revival of racism and a younger generation's rejection of racism?
3: I mean, I think I teach teach students with viewpoints across the political spectrum, and that's how it should be at a university. I think that, um, you know, um, all ideas and all political viewpoints have a home in a university classroom. Um, There are, of course, generational changes at work here. I think... The question is, um, to my mind, less about students' individual belief systems and more about the big demographic transformation of the United States. So, basically, um, whether voting rights can keep up with our demographic transformation or whether the United States will attempt some kind of minority rule via disenfranchisement. Um, and we can see that there are intense attacks on voting on other kinds of political participation underway. Um, And I think this has to do with the new census numbers, which at least to people in the white power movement reflect a state of emergency about the dwindling white race and the way that they feel overrun and not at home in their own country. Um, What we know is that the United States is becoming a more multiracial place, is becoming a place with more tolerance in many of these directions. Um, and the question is whether our, our democracy can keep up with those changes.
0: Well, Kathleen Ballou, I thank you so much for joining us here today and for your new book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence, and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And the latest book co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. And you've been listening to a retrospective broadcast of background briefings coverage of the January 6th insurrection as the year 2020 comes to a close. and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. next Took the kids to the
2: and disappeared
0: by half.